welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. This is episode 317. My name is Bill. Thanks for listening. Welcome to a special outdoors edition of the podcast. Trying something new here. I like to change things up every once in a while. It was a really nice day today. It is a really nice day today. And my dog needed to go outside and run in the yard and still requires a bit of monitoring, so I'm actually recording this episode outside. At least I'm intending to. We're starting that way anyway. We'll see how it goes. You may hear some sounds of nature in the backyard, including possibly my dog barking. I will try as much as I can to edit that out, but it may still creep in every now and then. My apologies, but like I said, it's a really nice day out here. All I need now is a cocktail and a nap. I hope all of you are doing well. This is the fifth episode since I died and came back to life with COVID, and I'm still alive and COVID-free. I have not gotten the bivalent, that's what it's called, but bivariant, bivalent booster shot, but I will probably be doing that soon. Any boosters that you guys can get, I hope that you're doing so. It's good for you. It's good for the people around you. Uh, it's just the right thing to do. Remember the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but a pencil must be led. I guess you are right. All right. Well, I guess reluctantly, we need to get on to this week's game. This week's game is Airlock for the 2600 from Data Age 1982. So the cover of the Airlock manual, sorry, the Airlock operations manual, has a dude in a diving suit. It appears he's holding a gas pump. Get ready to put gas in the submarine? Oh, I can't quite tell what he's doing. Oh, okay. The picture was kind of small. Now it looks like he's holding a handle off a motorcycle. I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, at the bottom left corner, it says pressure, zero, time, zero, five. And the front of the manual tells us that you're trapped. Your disabled nuclear submarine, resting perilously on an underseen ledge, has begun taking on water, with time running out for you and your crew, and with your onboard torpedo, torpedoes shaken loose by an eerie current from deep under the sea floor, it's up to you alone whether you sink or swim. A data age video game. Survival basics. The objective of airlock is to retrieve the hatch keys and make your way to the next level before your compartment floods. But at the same time, you must avoid the torpedoes that have been shaken loose and which, when they cross your path, rob you of precious time. How to handle underwater emergencies. Hook up your video games, because that's the first thing you should think about when you're having an underwater emergency. We're using the joystick for this one. They suggest uh, adjusting the brightness control switch on your TV to a low setting. I did not do that, although I probably should have. The keys, we'll get to more about the keys later. But the keys uh, end up on my screen looking both orange, when in reality one of them is white and one is orange. On my screen it looked like one lighter white key and one orange key. Press the game reset switch to start the game. You should see game play graphics and your timer clock on the screen. 49 seconds for games 1 and 2, 99 seconds for 3 and 4. Hindsight, I probably should have played one of those games. The game reset button may also be used to restart the game at any time. Game 1 is a single-player, five airlock levels. 2 is a two-player, five airlocks. 3 is single-player, ten airlock levels. And 4 is two-player, ten airlock levels. 
on your screen you're going to see an indicator at the top left of your level below that is uh, or on either side rather is the elevator the hatch key is attached to the ceiling on either side both sides actually uh, one color on each side of each level the uh, torpedoes are moving apparently at will across the floor in each level there's a timer at the top there's a barrier on either end of the level which serves no purpose other than to slow you down the hatch keys I mentioned players just a little orange guy running back and forth when the red fire button on your joystick controller is pressed the player will jump up and the timer will start you must now retrieve the hatch keys in the proper order orange key first white key second and make your way to the elevator Note that on each level, the elevator with an orange floor is on a different side, the side closest to the second key to retrieve. To retrieve a key, move your player directly underneath the key, then press your fire button. The player will jump to collect the key. You will also use your fire button to move your player over the barriers on each level, as well as to help him jump over the torpedoes that constantly move across his path. If you miss and are struck by a torpedo, it will not explode, but you'll be out of commission for several seconds before your player jumps up to resume game play. Once you have retrieved both keys on a level, the elevator doors will open, allowing you to enter the elevator. Be sure to go all the way to the end wall and have your player touch it. The elevator will rise to the next level. In hindsight, that's what we were doing wrong in the field report. More about that in the field report. This process must be repeated for each level your, until your final escape. Additional escape techniques. Here are five things you need to remember. The torpedoes cannot enter the elevator shaft, so once you have retrieved your keys and the door opens, Move it once into the elevator and you'll be out of danger's reach. Try positioning your player so that he can jump a barrier and torpedo at the same time. It can save you precious seconds and is darn near impossible. And the time you save on one level may help you cut and may help you out on the next. In games three and four, you have ten airlock levels to pass through. The first five levels, like those in games one and two, have two barriers per level, but the second five levels in three and four have four barriers per level. Not an easy task. The back of the manual tells us that all Data Age video games carry a limited one-year warranty. Ooh. I guess that means our 1982 game is out of warranty. Darn it. Because I certainly find this game cartridge to be defective. It's gotta be. Because, yeah, it's... Well, we'll get there in a minute. I just noticed on this site I'm looking at, this manual, there's a four-star review from 2016 saying that the game is awesome. Wow. I wonder what sort of uh, substances they're on. But at any rate, that is how you play... Airlock, from Data Age, 1982. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast, all about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. Frank Lovis in Electronic Fun with Computers and Games, 1982, disliked, quote, there's little to the game once you've pressed past the first level. 
because the remaining time carries over to subsequent levels, the game gets easier as you progress. HeyPoorPlayer.com wrote, Ah yes, Data Age, one of the many substandard game publishers that popped up in the early 80s to cash in on the success of the Atari 2600. With games like Snake, Bugs, and Warp Block, they did little to excite the average player. Although Frankenstein's Monster actually is rather good. This time I will look at one of their most infamous games, aquatic-themed platformer, Airlock. Gets off to a really good start. It's a really nice title screen, showing a submarine in the sea with fish and sharks swimming around it. I actually sat there for a while just admiring this because it looks so nice. This was a false sense of security, as unfortunately the same can't be said for the terrible game that comes after it. Very basic, very short. Remind me a lot of an old game I used to play on the BBC microcomputers at school, which was made entirely in basic, called Tower Bridge. The monster in each airlock moves at a different speed and can be avoided by simply jumping over it. If you get hit by the monster, then you die and is right right back to the start. As annoying as this is, though, I did like the death sequence when you get caught. Very similar in nature to the impressive title screen. If you manage to complete the screen, then you just do the same thing all over again, only a little bit harder. This game might be set in the depths, but depth is something that the game definitely doesn't have. In-game graphics are downright awful, really disappointing after the majestic title screen. The sound isn't much better. Gameplay is the worst part. One and a half out of five. The Crappy Games Wiki has a section in its review titled, Why It Sucks. Graphics are below average. Your character doesn't animate when he moves. The torpedoes are the character sprite recolored red without feet. The whole game can be completed in less than 30 minutes, including having practice with the game. The torpedoes behave like blade traps in the Zelda games and not like real torpedoes. When you get hit by a torpedo, you're temporarily stunned, wasting precious time. It's even possible you get hit by the same torpedo the moment you are able to move again. The controls are terrible. The title screen doesn't have the title of the game, only the name, name of the developer. The ending doesn't make sense. Your character is jumping while on top of the sinking submarine, as if he's away from danger, but there's nobody around to rescue him. The only redeeming quality, even though the title screen doesn't have the title, it looks nice compared to the submarine levels. HonestGamers.com opens by talking a little bit about the, quote, video game crash of 83, which had a big effect on a lot of things in the gaming industry, shifted the balance of power from America with Atari to Japan with Nintendo, Nintendo and Sega. Titles such as 1982's Airlock, a game which might not have single-handedly caused the crash, but by virtue of its existence could be called a contributing factor. A ton of games were being released around this time, many of which were poor, and this data age effort was bad even by bad gaming standards. The real obstacle is probably the play controls. Let's face it, with good control, the game would be nearly as easy as playing sneak and peek against yourself. Despite being as simplistic as possible, it still isn't easy to complete just because jumping a wee bit early or late and just, just once can spell doom. When it only takes 49 or 99 seconds to beat a game, depending on which version you play, you probably want there to be some factor making it a bit of a challenge to do so. I just personally don't want that factor to be my character moving with the dexterity of someone incapable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. Games like this were only released because the Atari 2600 had no standards for quality. If you wanted to make one and had the means to do so, your vision, no matter how crappy, could reach the market. (coughs) I'm sure most of you know this, but Data Age was based in California. Among its better known titles was Journey Escape, a tie-in with the band Journey, of course. We've done that one on the show. Frankenstein's Monster as well. I think I've done that on the show. The company was founded by Martin Meeker and four other designers. 35 people worked for them by December of 82. I don't know offhand when they closed shop. If anyone wants to share more about Data Age, though I'm not sure why you would, feel free. 
and I'll share it next time on the show. In the meantime, after the break, you know, after a little breather, we enter the airlock. You guys, by which I mean the people listening, not Henry, uh, you guys remember how much fun the movie Hunt for Red October was? Yeah, it was a good movie. Submarine movies are great. You know, um, uh, BU-59, whatever that movie was called. I'm blanking on what it was called. There have been so many great submarine movies, and the submarine genre is, is thrilling and exciting and fun. Yeah, Airlock? Not that at all. I don't know what Data Age was thinking, if they were thinking, but we are contractually obligated to look at this game. So, we're looking at the uh, title screen here, which actually looks pretty cool. Uh, Data Age has name on there. It's a really good-looking submarine. You got the sea life underneath, the water. It's all good. And then the game starts. So, gratuitous shot of my head. And here we go. There you are, the orange guy. I picked up the thing. There's a torpedo moving itself. And it just got me. You get a whole 10 seconds. I picked up the orange torpedo first, or the uh, key. And that's me drowning, which is a creepy effect. I kind of like it, except that the game is so hard. Here, I'll do it again, in case you missed it. It's one of those blink and you'll miss it kind of games. He doesn't look like a key, of course, but... Did you just face to the pool? You're not supposed to do that. I just kind of stumbled over it. I don't... No, you went all the way through it. Yeah. Yeah, you got stuck inside of it. One more time. So you get 10 seconds total to get the orange key, and then the white key, which on my screen basically looks like two orange keys. And then you're supposed to... And it freezes you for a second. I think the one on the left is actually the white key, but on my screen it looks kind of orange. I know. Um, I find the uh, the guy drowning to be both cool and creepy. It's an incredibly frustrating game. I've been playing it for a little while. I've never been able to do better than what you just saw. Maybe some of you out there have figured out how to do better at this. The reviews I've read suggest to me not really. It's an awful, awful game. I have hated some games that I've done on the 300 plus episodes. I don't know that I've ever hated one quite as much as this. And I'm sure I'll have more comments in the episode proper. For some reason, Henry, would you like to try this game? Sure. All right. Henry's probably going to premiere. We're passing the camera. Okay. We paused for a second. Henry is going to give this a shot. What was, I forgot which one. The far right. Idea is theoretically, you have ten seconds to get. Why are there torpedoes on the ship? Well, it's a it's a submarine with torpedoes on it. That's not so weird. Why are they on all the levels of the ship? What's weird? Well, I I think there's I think there's some garbage in the manual about them having 
been moved or something. Um, I've tried picking up the other key first. It won't let me because I think that one is supposedly the white one and you're supposed to pick up the orange one first. Um, he's given another shot. That's the thing with this game. It's so awful that you can't stop playing it because you can't believe how awful this game is. I'm going to try. I'm going to phase through it, kind of like uh, happened to me. Yeah, you can try it. That's, you ran well, out of time. You get 10, ten whole seconds. But why is there a countdown so not like 50 seconds? I don't know. I think okay, make, I, there's five levels. So you get for the game, you get a total of 50 seconds. 10 seconds per level. When you get both the keys, you're supposed to be able to get in an elevator on either side there and go up to the next level. How are you supposed to... I know. How are you supposed to get both? The movement is too slow. I, uh, yeah, I hear you, dude. I know. And why do you have to press the button to start it? Just wasting time. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I know. I'm gonna get this time. <laughs> in a way, I want you to do it, but in a way, I don't because then you make me look bad. But I also want to see what happens when you do. I do like the noise when he runs. No! I got caught on the thing! Uh, yeah. I'm so close! I know, and it wastes time and it. it yeah, makes this me is the one, I feel. Alright, get ready, everybody. This is the one. Keep and mind. then it transports you back. Yeah. And you can't move. It's a. Yep. Yeah, I found this one. I hear you. Did they finish? Is this the finished version? <laughs> no, that's a serious question. Is this I know the finished version? Uh, and that's why it's funny because yeah, it's this, they they actually worked on this game and put it out. I think the deal is in '83. Atari was kind of dying as a console, and so companies were trying to get the games out as fast as they could to take advantage of the people who still wanted them. No, so this, they probably rushed this one. This is put this put the nail in the coffin. <laughs> no, this is the coffin. Well, Data Age wasn't the one who was making Atari consoles. They were just making money off what? games for the Atari console. But by '83, like uh, Nintendo and stuff were starting to come in, so. They did not finish bug testing it. <laughs> I'm gonna try a different angle. Alright, go for it. Henry, you can't see him, but he has moved. Also it's okay to uh, also you only get also you only get um nine seconds. Yeah. Now it's gonna come back. <sighs> if it wasn't for that blue thing. And what is that? Uh, it's just a thing they put there to make it harder, I guess. I think really if you just hit the missile, that would be enough yeah. of a challenge. It just added more. Yeah, maybe uh, what? instead of having to stumble over that blue or purple thing, I guess actually. A nice blue looks purple. They could have just had, had a missile, and maybe on the higher levels there's two missiles or something. Yeah, makes no sense. I know. He's got it. What? It's the missile comes at you. It's yeah. 
It, it make, that makes no sense, but they do. What? And I can't get it now. Of course that happens. comes at you and, and you don't have and literally don't have any time. Yeah, and the time doesn't start, but that starts. I guess. I oh, should, hold on, hold on, hold on. I should say for the people who are just listening to this, not watching. It, I figured it out. Um, on either side of the level, there are these purple little barricades that you have to jump over to get to the key, which is uh, attached to the ceiling. I did it! Holy crap, he did. What? You have to wait because the time doesn't start and you don't die when you get hit by the torpedo if you don't press it. For the people listening. So you wait for it to go, so you wait for it to go that way, and then go, as it's coming back, when it gets past you, then you go, because you can't die from it. Alright, for the people listening, show you Henry got it. both keys, and he was just about on the elevator. And how do you... Uh, what is it, elevator uh, count factor in with your time? I don't know, because I've never made it. Stop the time! They're jerks. Sorry, Data oh, Age, but you are jerks. Last time. He says. I bet he comes back later and plays this. If he does before I record, I'll let you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. By the guy drowning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why is it going drowning on top when he starts at the very bottom of the ship? What? A, a metaphorical drowning. This makes no sense. And why do the torpedoes look like that? Why do the keys look like that? It's the limited graphics of Atari, and possibly also beyond that. He actually got on the elevator, but well, then the time ran out. But it didn't. The elevator just didn't move at all, anyways. I don't actually. Hold on. I'm gonna look at the manual. I'm pausing it. I'm gonna look at the manual to see what happens on the elevator because I don't. What I can tell is the elevator doesn't move. I've jumped and pressed, put this in all directions, but the elevator doesn't move. I am going to declare an end to the video. Henry's probably going to keep playing this because oh, he's addicted that. now. He is clearly demonstrated that he could get better at this than me, and I will report back to you if he actually succeeds. Uh -huh. Oh, it's looking good, looking good, looking good. Yes, yes, yes. Except I don't know how to make the elevator move. Oh, he got on the elevator. I suspect any minute now he's going to. Make it happen. No, I, I will There's let you know. The elevator just doesn't move. 
in the meantime, back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Car by Car podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games, which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's X-E-G-S, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Second Duck on the Right and Other Very Short Stories is my new short story collection. Duck con artists, zombies, things on fire, supervillain angst, and a future without poop are just a few of the topics in these stories. Also the occasional really bad poem. Waddle on over to your favorite bookseller or swim downstream to my website, carnivalofgleecreations.com, for more information. Insert quacking up joke here. So here's the thing about airlock. To be fair to airlock, there are a couple things I didn't really realize until I really looked at the manual closely. Henry and I probably should have tried the 99-second version to get more time until we figured out what we were doing. The other thing is I don't think Henry, when he got in the elevator, was going all the way to the far wall. He was going in just far enough to touch the, you know, to get in the elevator. When we're done here, I may go and tell him these things, and he might give it another shot. If he does, I will let you know. You know, I'll let you know how he does. All that said, I still don't like this game. It's just not good. Other than the opening screen and the end screen, which everybody has talked about, I dislike all of the things all those other reviewers dislike. Even if you can get through the five levels, I mean, that's it. That's the end of the game. There's just not enough to it to make it interesting, unfortunately, given the, the promise that it had. People like submarines, right? The submarine genre is, is popular. There have been a number of submarine movies. There have been, I'm sure, submarine video games that were good, uh, but this isn't one of them. If you guys really want to argue with me about that, or uh, if you want to agree with me, let me know. It's story time on Atari Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This week's story is titled Airlocked and Loaded, a Steve Stetson 1980s super spy adventure. The SlexCorp Industries cargo plane soared over middle America. Its boxes of stolen gaming consoles had already been offloaded in midair. It was cool. You should have been there to see it. The boxes would soon reach their destination, the hot Midwest retro gaming black market. The plane's warehouse manager, Debbie, would not. You can't leave me here, Debbie said, ponytail quivering indignantly. Her former friend and colleague, Doug, grinned. It wasn't pretty. Well, you're duct taped to the chair, so I think I can, actually. He made final adjustments to the parachute strapped to his back. We were friends, Debbie said. What happened? Doug shrugged. I liked Yar's revenge better than I liked you. I should have guessed that when I saw your joystick. 
Debbie snorted. Adios, said Doug, turning to his crew. Then he turned back to Debbie. That means bye-bye. Thanks. Doug pulled the key fob from his pocket, pointed it toward the cockpit, and turned off the autopilot. Then he hit another button and opened the cargo bay door. Debbie screamed to be heard over the wind rushing it. Doug, don't do this. Think of the baby Pac-Man. But Doug was gone, along with his cronies, floating to safety with their 1979 Atari Skydiver parachutes. Debbie struggled with the duct tape. She remembered a YouTube video and, lifting her arms over her head, twisted her wrists together, then apart, snapping the tape. She quickly cut through the tape around her waist and feet. She was free. But stuck alone on a crashing plane. A thud on the roof of the plane. For a moment, Debbie thought she had crashed already, but that thud presumably would have been on the bottom of the plane, and also she'd be dead. Debbie ran to the cockpit door. It was locked. Debbie frantically beat on it. Stupid cockpit! Did somebody say cock? A voice responded. Debbie whipped around and saw a tall man in goggles and a speedo staring at her from the still-open cargo bay door. Steve Stetson at your service, Stetson said. All kinds of service, actually, but for now, I suspect you just want to live. I can help with that. Come with me. Debbie shrugged and ran to the stranger. Hold on tight, Stetson said. You ever do a free fall? What? Me either, Stetson said before pushing them both out of the plane. Doug and his cronies were parachuting to the rendezvous point. As the last to jump out, Doug was closest to the plane. The screams would have been deafening had it not been for the jet stream. Debbie was yelling too. Pressed against each other, aerodynamic as possible, Stetson aimed the Stetson-Debbie sandwich toward Doug's billowy chute. Stetson employed dexterity honed from a childhood spent at the neighborhood opium den, which was an odd choice for a child, but handy because Steve Stetson had become a frogger champ. The two frogger hopped their way across the parachutes of Doug and his cronies until finally they reached the super-secret spy rescue plane. Tumbling into the waiting arms of the U.S. government, which really was just the coat rack Stetson always traveled with to hold his herringbone jackets, Debbie looked gratefully at Stetson. Game over, she said. Stetson looked outside at the parachutes floating down to the waiting agents on the ground below. Guess he ran out of quarters, Stetson said pithily, fondling his herringbone. Maddie Grimm loved nothing, but there was one thing she liked quite a bit. The smell of 42 varieties of jasmine working in olfactory concert. It was a delicate balance of scents, one that had taken years to perfect, and it was all wiped out in an instant with one juicy bottom burp. Gross, Stetson, Maddie Grimm said. Nothing wrong with farts, Stetson responded. I happen to have a superhuman intestinal tract. Everyone says so. Maddie Grimm was probably rolling her eyes, but it was hard to tell under the faux fur hat. As it happens, she said, gas features into your new mission. Oh, regular or premium? Human, Grimm said, and humans are garbage, so you tell me. Stetson thought about arguing, but 
he was distracted by another stink bomb percolating. You know that scientists for a while have been studying whether the methane released by cows could be harnessed to prevent climate change and possibly as a fuel source? Well, some think the same could be done with human flatulence. Stetson considered this. Gas isn't the only thing that comes from my nether regions that could save the world, he said with a wink. Grim mentally ticked off another day until her retirement. Be that as it may, she said, Donovan Slex claims he has developed a process in which he impregnates... Stetson chortled at the word impregnate. Grim pressed on. He impregnates ordinary air molecules with a super concentration of human methane. Super impregnate, Stetson tittered to himself. We want you, Grimm said, to infiltrate Slex's compound and find the glass dome where he keeps his supercharged air. We need to know how he's doing it. So bring the air back here. Bring it back if you can, Grimm said. Destroy it if you have to. It was well known, it was well known that Slex's favorite lunch spot was the big dog on Melrose. Not the big dog on 46th. That one sucked. The big dog on Melrose makes a killer chili dog. Slex himself was famously not flatulent, but he liked being around those who were, for odd reasons known only to himself. Plus, Slex was a silent partner, silent but deadly, with the firm that owned this particular franchise, so there was that. Stetson timed his arrival for just after Slex had ordered. Like him, Stetson had ordered the four-alarm dog with the jalapeno fries. Pretty busy today, he said to Slex as he moved through the dining room with his food tray. May I join you? I'd have it no other way, Slex said, gesturing to a chair. The two were pretending to not know each other, but also pretending to be friendly sorts. Stetson wiped away some big dog sauce on the seat across from Slex and sat down. A few minutes of non-conversation about the weather and the latest presidential debate ensued. Halfway through the dog, Stetson let a little squeaker go. The fartless Slex couldn't help but react with something like envy. Oh, yeah, Stetson said. Sorry, do that a lot. He tried looking apologetic, but it wasn't a natural look for him. It wasn't long before his small talk earned an invitation from Slex to a cocktail party happening the following Friday night. Stetson knew Slex just wanted his farts, but he'd been desired for far less, so oh well. At the party, Stetson made the rounds, charming the guests. He wondered if everyone was there simply for their flatulence prowess, or if there was actually something they liked about Slex. Whatever. Stetson's phone had a blueprint of Slex's compound, and he made his way to the lab while Slex was busy with other guests. The entrance code was easy to crack. He'd seen a MacGyver episode once where Mac blew dust onto the keypad. The dust stuck to some of the keys because of the oil from the bad guy's fingers, so those were the keys he wanted. Stetson did the same now with pixie stick dust. He liked cherry best. This narrowed down the choices to, well, one digit. Slex was a brilliant business person, but a lousy code setter. Stetson found the right digit and went to, into the lab. On one of the counters sat what looked like an empty pie plate with a glass top. Stetson went to it and confirmed it was the container for the impregnated air. As he considered what to do, he heard voices outside the lab. He decided he wasn't going to be able to walk out with the container. Marshalling all his sphincter prowess, Stetson dropped his pants. Stetson not only was a master of the fart, he was a master of the reverse fart. He removed the lid from the container and sucked the impregnated air into his butthole. It tickled. Pulling up his pants, Stetson made his way to the back door of Slex's house. He set off an explosive device to slow down his pursuers and met Maddie Grimm in her Hummer, parked on the road just outside the compound gates. As they drove away, Stetson snatched Grimm's faux fur hat, lined as always with tinfoil. 
Maddie Grimm knew enough to know that the aliens would invade imminently, but not enough to know that tinfoil hats would serve no purpose. As they drove away, Stetson declared, Special delivery! Then unleashed a massive impregnated air fart into the tinfoil and quickly sealed it shut. You're disgusting, Grimm said. I'm a man who shares everything, Stetson said. So sue me. You're also an idiot, Grimm said. This is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. Go get some air. Then head over to Apple Podcast and lock in a five-star review of the show. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page, follow the show on Twitter at ataribytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And check us out on Instagram. You can call me, too, and leave me a voicemail. 563-265-1978. I'm waiting to hear from you. Please don't call and leave me a a fart voicemail. Check out the website, www.carnivalofgleecreations.com. You're going to find information and links to this show, uh, as well as my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown, and information about books I've written, which you can possess. Please consider supporting the show financially by making a donation on the Atari Bytes Patreon page, by becoming a subscriber on the Atari Bytes Patreon page. If you do that, you can join an exclusive club with these folks. Michael Tyler, Jose Cazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Jeremy L., Mark Super, Jim Goebel, and Robert Ferguson. Thanks to all of them. All right, we're about done. All that's left is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. It'll be our last episode before Halloween, so we're going to do a little uh, spooky action. We're playing Midnight Mutants, a 7800 game. We haven't done anything on the 7800 for a while, so that'll be fun. If you have thoughts about Midnight Mutants and you want to share them, please do. Uh, That'll be your treat for the rest of us. All right, that's about it. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.
Thank you.